chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. So often uh, we, we take time and we focus upon uh, this familiar passage in the beginning of Acts chapter 5, what happens to Ananias and Sapphira. But in reality, uh, the section begins back in 432 with the illustration of what Barnabas does, Joseph or, or Barnabas as he is known. Uh, and you really need to take the two in tandem to get an, an understanding of what the Lord is talking about and what is happening within the early church during these days. So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read God's word today? <laughs> Heavenly Father, come upon us today with understanding. Give us insight into your word, Lord, that it might dwell in us richly. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 4, verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with the great power the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, um, translated which means son of encouragement, and he owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and covered him up. And after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours. And his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they shall carry you out as well. And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward, and we're going to take up another offering. Uh, <laughs> Man, this is... Uh, you know, this is one of the things that we, we've... we've 
we've heard this, this, this narrative for, for years, especially the portion about Ananias and Sapphira. And we have to understand some context to get a, get a full understanding of the meaning of what is going on here. Now, there are many firsts in the book of Acts. It's the beginning of the church, so a lot of things are happening at this time. And perhaps the, the worst first that we experience is the rise of the persecution by Satan of the church. And as so often, what happens is Satan kind of overreached in his first persecution as he went after Peter and John, and that threw them in prison. And in reality, they got a chance to testify to the things of Christ to a greater degree, and even to the Sanhedrin, because of the persecution that they were facing. So uh, if, I, if I kind of put words on it, um, Satan kind of pulls back a little bit and comes up with a new plan and says, I'm going to strike the church at one of the portions of the human heart that is most susceptible, and that is hypocrisy. Now, I've said it before, so it's, it's no great clue or no great in, in, insight here that the, the church is not full of hypocrites. There's always room for one more. Okay? There are, we are all hypocritical in some fashion. Some are just more blatant than others. What we have here is a story of Ananias and Sapphira who, was bla- who were blatantly hypocritical. Okay? It wasn't that they just didn't lie, but they lied so that others would think that they were far more spiritually attuned than what they were in reality. So the body of Christ is being attacked by the things of Satan in this fashion right now. And we find this attack continues even in today and will remain until the return of Christ. Now I think it's important in chapter 5 in particular that we understand this is a great illustration of, how do I want to say this, um, th- that the Lord doesn't sugarcoat anything. Now, it would have been easy to leave this portion of Scripture out or not cover this event, right? And we would think that everything within the church at the early days was just fantastic and it was great, but that's not what the Lord does. Again and again, we see great men and women of God, we see great movements of God, and they are described warts and all, okay? David was, uh, the list of his sins is long but yet the Lord worked in his life. We see the Lord using people. We see the Lord using tax gatherers and harlots. We see the Lord using blatant sinners. Look around. He is using us in the same fashion. So he makes it clear in his word that none of the people that he chooses are perfect. And even, even after their lives have been changed, they are not perfect either. Okay? Now, if we didn't see these types of things in Scripture, I think we would be challenged to come to grips with well, the people in the Bible are perfect. Why aren't we perfect? And there would be this great struggle within our lives and, and be really defeating. But we see how imperfect even these great people of faith were. So in their imperfection, I am encouraged. How about that? Okay. Now, let's look at Jerusalem in the first century. Jerusalem in the first century was not a prosperous place. Okay, there had been famines, there had been disease. Uh, remember, the church grew from 120, and just in a few months now, there are 20,000 people approximately within the church, and they are still centered mostly around Jerusalem. 
So there's this great influx. You had these pilgrims come in. They heard the gospel. They saw the power of the Holy Spirit. Many of them have remained in the Jerusalem area, and now they need cared for. So the church has to come up with an answer and to this problem, how to care for all these, this influx of believers into the church in the midst of famine, in the midst of uh, just, uh, if we want to call it, uh, for the first century, bad economic times. And this is how they addressed it. Chapter 4, verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. One heart and soul. There was a unity in this early church that, frankly, is, is outstanding. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And, and we'll look at this a little bit more, so I won't, I won't speak to that now. But the church had grown so rapidly, they understood that if it was going to continue, they had to be on the same page. They had to be on the same page. So in this process of caring for the body of Christ and and demonstrating this unity, Luke gives us two examples. A positive example and a negative example. The positive example is Barnabas, verse 36 And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which means son of encouragement. And we get every indication that Barnabas lived out his name, that he was one who spoke those words of encouragement, that cared for others. And here is a demonstration of that, who owned a tract of land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, there is real spiritual unity in this early church. They had one heart and one soul. They felt what the others felt. Okay? We weep together, we rejoice together. This is what was going on in the first century. Their unity was based on a common faith. It was based on the teaching of the apostles, a common doctrine that they all held to. It was based in their love, demonstrated out of their humility and their care for one another. This was the character of this early church. So in Acts chapter 4, let's go back to Acts chapter 4, verse 2. Verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Peter and John were then seized because of what they were preaching. They really hated this message. The Sadducees, the chief priests, that Jesus had risen from the dead. This is the guy they crucified. They, they had put him away. And no, they didn't want to think about him anymore. But yet here are these two who were out preaching with such power and authority that Jesus Christ had come out of the grave. So naturally they forbade them to preach that. And naturally it was, they were unable to stop their preaching and declaration of of these things that were true, and it only spurred on to a greater degree the impact that the gospel was having. Now, they were never suppressing the message because it offended someone. That's an important thing for us today to remember. The early church never suppressed the message because it was offensive. Uh, I believe it's in Romans that Paul says, Jesus Christ is the rock of offense. The rock of offense. See, we... I'm a sweeping generalization. People usually don't like to offend other people. And the gospel is offensive. And we can never remove that offense from the gospel. 
That when you declare the truth, those who do not believe in the truth will be offended. Those whose sin is revealed will begin to hate you. They don't hate the message so much. They hate the one that delivers the message. So you cannot remove the offense from the declaration of the gospel. We cannot make it more palatable. We cannot make it less offensive. It is what it is. And it is not our job to address a little change, make it easier, or to, to say, well, well, you know, you don't really have to believe to that extent. Well, yes, Scripture says you have to do this. Scripture says you must believe these things. It says these things are true. Well, I don't particularly like those things. There are a lot of things in Scripture I don't like, but yet they are true. And we have to pattern and shape our lives in accordance with that. That means that it will be offensive. Now, think about that for a moment. There's a truth and and, and kind of a thing that we don't typically talk very much about. Every non-believer in the world is an offense to God. Every non-believer is an offense to God because they are in the midst of their sin. Their focus is upon themselves. They are bound by the chains of sin, and they cannot remove themselves from that sin. They are a constant offense to God. Isn't it worth two or three minutes of being, of offending them with the gospel? That they might find an answer, that they might be released, that they might be changed from being an offense to God to being a child of God? Okay, you know that comes in an instant. There were, there were how, how long in your life were you an offense to God before Jesus Christ came upon you? And suddenly, in that instant, in the moment of justification, you went from being an offense to God, an enemy to being his child. He adopted you through the work of Christ. Your name was forever changed. You received an inheritance that cannot be taken, that is kept safe for you for all eternity. You are now his. And a moment ago, you were an offense. Now you are his child. They preached this offensive message, and it was a sweet-smelling aroma in the nostrils of those who believed. Now, their unity of the early church showed in two, two forms. Theoretical unity, that theoretical unity was based upon their theology and their, um, their purpose, why they were there. Remember, they, they were centered around the teachings of Christ as taught by the apostles. So there was a theoretical unity, but there was also a practical unity a practical unity, and this is shown in verse 32. We'll go there once again, chapter 4, verse 32. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart, one soul, not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. All that I have belongs to all of you. Now, where did they get this crazy idea? Okay, where in scripture can we turn and find a passage that says when you become a believer, you have to give up everything that you have and give it to the rest of the body of believers? Now, some of you have some cool stuff I'm waiting to get. Okay, (laughs) well, it doesn't say that. Peter doesn't make this an edict for joining the church. He doesn't say when you become a believer, when your life is transformed by Christ, when you become his child, you've got to give me all your stuff. And you've got to lay it at the feet of the apostles and will take care of it. He never says that. 
Okay? Now, we can find that in today's world, there are some radical cults that do that, that say when you come with us, you have to give up all of your worldly belongings, and, and it's different than the monastic life. In the monastic life, you give up all of your worldly belongings, you sell them or give them away. In some of the radical cults, you give them to the leader, okay? and he takes care of them. Now, we see throughout history, the Moravians, uh, some Mennonites and Amish, we see this where they kind of pooled their uh, material wealth for the benefit of the whole group. That is different than the cults. That is a little bit different even than the first century church here. It doesn't say that you have to do this, but the church saw the need, and they did it because they wanted to. They wanted to. They saw the need. Remember the economic status of Jerusalem in the first century? It was not very good. Remember the influx of those 20,000 new church members. What were they going to do with that? The church was unified. They saw the need, and practically they acted to fulfill the need. Most importantly, they had the right view of their money. They had the right view of their possessions. It wasn't theirs. I belong to the Lord. Everything that I have belongs to the Lord as well. The desperate need in the church, so the church met the need. The Christian's view of possessions should be that we hold all things in trust for God. And you say, all things. I thought I, I, thought I was just held to 10%, Rand. How do we go to 100%? Well, the 10th is a stewardship issue. But philosophically and even practically, all things we have belong to the Lord. Because all things belong to the Lord. He is the creator of all things. Now you might think, well, okay, Lord, you know, take it if you want it. Well, he didn't take it, so I guess I get to keep it. Is that, no, that's not the way. It's a, it's a philosophical understanding that what I have, yes, I worked hard for, but it belongs to the Lord. He has empowered me. He has opened the doors. It has been a struggle sometimes, but yet all I have is his. Your love as a Christian gets just as practical as what you're willing to sacrifice. Your love as a Christian gets just as practical as what you are willing to sacrifice. So I want you to keep that in mind as we look at this. Look at verse 35 now. And they laid them at the apostles' feet, and they would distribute it to each as they had need. You'll notice that they didn't turn around and said, oh, you know, he's got a need or she's got a need. I'll just give it directly to them. No, they came and they gave it to the apostles and let them administrate it. That is the, the um, how do I want to say, the template for how the church operates today. We take an offering, it comes and is left to the elders to decide how that money is spent. Okay? And that's kind of taken out of this passage. Okay? If they do it wisely, we're... we're exalted and, and it's, it's great and the kingdom uh, flourishes. Uh, if they're stupid, then, uh, well, that's chapter 5, I think, isn't it? <laughs> All right, let's keep going. We've seen the positive thing. Where Barnabas came, he gave it. There were no strings attached. He just gave it and said, take it, use it for the good of the kingdom. Now we see the negative idea with Ananias and Sapphira. Now, we're not told whether Ananias and Sapphira were truly believers. 
Uh, and and part, there, there, there are arguments either way, whether they were actually true believers and, they, and their lives were changed or they were just, in a sense, attenders, where they came and were part of the group and because it was a, a group maybe their friends were in or they had become assimilated in some fashion, but whether they or not they really believed, we just don't know for sure. If we think that they were not true Christians, then we could easily shrug off their story. Well, they weren't believers, so it's not really important. See what happens when you're not a believer and you try to lie to the Lord? This is what you get. Or if they were real believers and this is what happened, then we might rationalize it in our own minds and think, well, this was a one-time occurrence. Okay, I've never seen it happen before, and, um, or, or I've never seen it happen since, so that was just a one-time occurrence. We do know that Ananias and Sapphira were were part of the early church. They were involved in what was going on, even to the point that they were willing to financially support to some degree, not totally, but to some degree, the work of what was going on. It is important that we understand that their sudden deaths show that God judges sin. God does not have a tolerance for sin. He does not have a tolerance for sin. Now, what was their sin? Their sin was not that they didn't give everything. Okay, I want to make sure you understand that. So if I come to you and say, I want you to sell your piece of property and give it to the church, and you say, well, okay, but I'm going to keep back a little bit. No, that's, the sin is not that they didn't give everything. God didn't ask them to give everything. God didn't ask them to give anything here. This was a voluntary action. Their sin was in lying. Their sin was in hypocrisy. Their sin was in wanting the body of Christ to think that they were more spiritual than they really were. You know, they said, well, if I do this, then everybody will look at me and go, wow, you see, they're a great couple. Man, the Lord's really working in their life. Okay? It is easy to become prideful. And this was an a vehicle for them to build themselves up in the eyes of the rest of the church. Well, they said they were giving everything. Let's see about that. Keep your hand in Acts and go back to Joshua chapter 7. The Greek word that Luke uses, to keep something back. This is what Ananias and Sapphira did. They held something back. It is a very rare word. In fact, it is only used twice in all of Scripture. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is used once. And in the Greek translation of the New Testament, it is used there in Acts chapter 5. And the usage in the Old Testament is here in Joshua chapter 7. In Joshua chapter 7, we have the story of what happens after the fall of Jericho. The people of God are going up against the city of, of Ai, okay? and because that's the next one on the list. And the Lord has said, go and, and have at it. Well, remember, they've just conquered Jer- Jericho. They walked around, they blew the horns, the walls fell, they killed what? Everybody. Everybody, everything was to be devoted to the Lord. Okay, that was the clear commandment of the Lord. Why did he do that? 
That is his affair, okay, in a sense. But everything was devoted to him. Now they go off to the next city. What, what did not happen in the conquest of Jericho? Nobody was killed. None of, the, none of the Israelites were killed. We don't have any evidence that anybody was even injured. So off they go to Ai. What's the expectation? We're going to flatten the city. We're going to take everything. Nobody's going to be killed. They go up for battle. They come back. People die. We didn't take the city. What happened? Well, we know what happened. There was a certain guy who was involved in the conquest of Jericho named Achan. And Achan did something very bad. Look at verse 16. So Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the family of Judah near, and he took the family of the Zerahites, and he brought the family of the Zerahites near man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household near man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, was taken. So he walked everybody through. The Lord said this group. The Lord said this group, this group, this man. And he came to Achan. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him praise. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, that would be a coat, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them. Took them. That's the same word in the Greek as used in Acts. I held it back. Look at the, look at the way it unfolds here in verse 21. I saw, I coveted, I took, and I concealed. This is the sin of Achan. And this is basically the same sin that is going on in Ananias and Sapphira. I withheld it. I took it for my own. They said one thing. This is all we have, and I'm going to give it to the Lord. But in reality, their hearts were saying, but I'm not giving everything. Okay, I'm keeping the juicy part for me. That's what Achan thought. And you know the punishment for Achan. He and his entire family were killed. He and his entire family were killed. Well, we read that passage in the Old Testament, and we think, Old Testament, okay? That's what the Lord used to do, okay? Nowhere do we find nowadays that the Lord comes and says, take a city or anything like that, nothing like that. But then we come to the same word and the same type of event here in the midst of the growing church in the midst of the coming of the power of the Holy Spirit upon the early church, we see the same type of event happen. So we can't say that these things just are Old Testament, or, or we can't explain them, them away as some you know, one-time occurrence there. These things happen. God judges sin. Do I expect him to come upon um, any of us who are hypocritical and strike us all down? Uh, no, because we'd all go down. Okay? We would all go down. But we see very clearly that God brings his judgment upon sin. And it's a sin that Satan loves, isn't it? 
Hypocrisy is just a sin that Satan loves. Satan hates it when we care for one another. He hates it when we're loving for one another. He hates it when we go out of our way to care for members of the body of Christ, but he loves it when we're hypocritical. He loves it when we lie. He loves it especially when we lie to one another or to our Lord. He just thinks that is great because that destroys the unity of the body of Christ. And we are all prone to hypocrisy. Okay? Ananias and Sapphira conspired together to deceive the apostles, to deceive the church. They were trying to impress everyone with their higher level of spirituality, and they really weren't very spiritual at all. They were motivated by love of self, not love of anything else. So Peter exposes the fraud. He knows the truth, whether the Lord has given him insight or whether there was some guilty look on the face of Ananias. You know, some people are good liars and some people are bad liars. Uh, So we don't know exactly what happened, but Peter addresses him directly. He heard uh, verse 4, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? You don't have to come here and give anything. Peter says, why is it that you conceive this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. There is a spiritual battle raging here, and it is clear that God wins. And Ananias is not even given a chance to repent. He is not confronted with his sin and then given the option to repent. Now, in our world today... um, uh, you know, we've not done this since, since I've been here, but uh, somebody's in great sin, and they're brought down in front of the congregation and given a chance to repent and confess. And, and when I've seen that in other places, there's great rejoicing, there's great times of prayer, and there's healing, and there's restoration, and all those types of things. None of that happens here. He says, these guys are going to carry you out. You're done. And he dies right there. Now, we think that's kind of narrow-minded. Everybody lies, don't they? I mean, when was the last time you lied? You don't have to tell me. Lord knows, okay? Everybody lies. What's, where's the chance for repentance here? Apparently the Lord said, this is an illustration of what happens to sin. There's no chance for, uh, option for him. His heart is corrupt. He has pursued this. He has pursued it wantonly and purposefully. And he's dead now. Now he is dead. Sin is a big deal in the eyes of God. Maybe not from our relativistic worldview, but in the eyes of God, it is very, very big. So Ananias hears it. He falls down. This is the, this is the word as is used in Scripture. Basically, it translates death at the hands of heaven. Death at the hands of heaven. It is the same word that is used for uh, Nadab and Abihahu, who offered what's called strange fire, uh, who, uh, and others throughout Scripture, who acted in a way that was displeasing to God, and God simply killed them right there. Death at the hands of heaven. No wonder great fear comes upon all those who were here. Now, what happens? They haul him out and they bury him. No ceremony, nothing fancy. Everybody understood that this was the work of the Lord. This guy, we want to get him in the ground and away from us as fast as possible. So off he goes. Three hours later, Sapphira comes in. Peter asks her a question to give her a chance to say what is right or to give her a chance to continue in the lie of her husband. There is no, ladies, there's... There's no way to get around this. There's no way that Sapphira could have gone, well, my husband told me to lie, so I have to. 
It doesn't work here, okay? You have to tell the truth. You have to do what is right before the Lord. No matter what your husband says, she had to tell the truth. So Peter gives an opportunity to confess or to persist. And she persists in sin. Peter declares that the young men who buried her husband are at the door and they're going to carry her out as well. No chance for repentance, death by the hands of heaven. Now, I get the impression, I don't have any evidence of this, but I get the impression that the gift of Ananias and Sapphira was probably pretty substantial. And if Peter wasn't a man of of principle, if, if he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit here, he may have maybe hedged his bet and took their gift and then gone and said, now we have to talk about what's going on. The Lord's revealed to me that you have held back and and want these things and I'm going to give you a chance to repent. We're going to keep the gift for the work of the Lord, but I want to give you a chance to repent. He doesn't do that. They're dead. They're gone. Peter was more concerned with purity in the church than he was with taking a gift that was given with the wrong motives. Jesus paints the whole picture of hypocrisy in Matthew chapter 6 as he talks about the Pharisees and how they want everybody to think how godly they are, but inside they are death and they are rotten. He he, uh, equates them with the whitewashed tombs later in the gospel. He said, you look out there, the whitewashed tombs beside Jerusalem look so pure and so sparkly in that mid-east sun, but inside what what are they filled with? Death and decay. So Ananias and Sapphira want to look good in front of the apostles. Barnabas had just given a whole boatload, and everybody praised him. They wanted the same thing. What's this mean for us today? I don't believe that the Lord is going to strike you dead today if you're hypocritical. I believe that if you were hypocritical in some fashion and you're attuned to the things of God, he will work on you. There's good guilt and there's bad guilt. If you're guilty and the Lord places his finger upon you, you should feel guilty. Okay? You should feel guilty. But in the larger perspective, we need to understand that the things we have belong to the Lord. And whether anybody else knows what we give or knows what we do, that is not important. We are not here for attaboys. We're not here for the adulation of the world. We are here to do what is right in the eyes of God. He will know. And we need to be satisfied with that. Not just satisfied, we need to rejoice in that. Because when the Lord sees what we do, when he understands that our motives are right and our hearts desire his kingdom, then he will remember and he will bless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you you tell us very clearly in your, your word that we don't just love in word or talk, but we love in deed. We demonstrate the love that you've placed in our hearts. We read these passages and we see your mighty work, but we also see ourselves in these characters, these people. In Ananias and Sapphira, Lord, none of us are pure. None of us are without hypocrisy. But we throw ourselves on your mercy. Show us in our lives where we are like this in our dealings with others, in our attitudes, in our work for the kingdom. Show us these things, Lord, that we might flee from sin, that we might work to cleanse ourselves from these things. 
that our motives might be right, that our hearts might be right, that we might care for one another and act in godly fashions for your purposes and for your kingdom. And not care if anybody else sees us, not care if anybody else knows what we've done. You will know, and we will rejoice in that. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.